Hey, welcome back to The Craft, where we explore the creative process. My name is Colby, and I'm a product manager and marketer and music producer. And I'm Carter, a PhD student and writer. And today we're going to be talking about tracking creative growth. So I think this is a good one for the kind of beginning of the year because one of the things I've been thinking about, and this was even in our creative review, is setting up better metrics. Metrics for reflection, but also kind of metrics to gauge growth. And I think this is really simple in some disciplines. So let's say financially, do you have more money in your bank account or less, right? Growth is pretty easy to gauge there. But am I a better music producer? Am I a better writer? Those are way different questions, right? Those are going to be a lot more complex than looking at a bottom line. And so I'm excited today to kind of talk through some of these, and even for myself personally, to try to be a little more cognizant of these. And so I've got like a weekly weekly kind of journal roundup thing that I'm doing, trying out this year. I think a week's a good amount of time. And so I'm hoping that maybe some of this conversation can help inform what I'm paying attention to, because I think that's the question. If we are trying to gauge our growth, which we want to do if we want to get better, what do we need to pay attention to? So maybe that's the the exigence, the problem for the episode. Cole, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, man. Maybe we should start with just the how question. I think that's most top of mind to me. The why question is super obvious. I mean, we want to understand how we're growing over time. And I don't think it's for the sake of like quantifying super specific metrics and getting really technical. It's just more so to like boost that confidence and understand and to see bigger picture how you're growing as an artist. I mean, that's the why I think, but yeah, maybe we just dive right into the how, like how do we actually track growth? Super. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about, and I'm going to set this up and then throw it right back to you, is the kind of idea of temporality or time in our like in our growth tracking. So it's easy to be totally fixated on what you're doing at the moment and then just like carry that through. So each day you're concerned with what you're working on that day, the project that you're working on, and you don't really kind of step back to see projects versus other projects and do like comparisons. So I think one of the challenges, first of all, is is trying to get some perspective. And this is kind of a long way around to the idea of lead and lag metrics that you've mentioned before, which I think are really helpful in getting some perspective and in understanding, you know, growth from kind of the micro and macro level. So maybe you could kind of introduce those ideas since you introduced them to me and we could talk about how those could be helpful. For sure. I think that essentially there's two two different types of metrics. There's lead metrics and lag metrics. Lead metrics are actually focused on a little bit less commonly. So we'll start with lag metrics. Lag metrics are things that are essentially like you could think of them as output or outcome. And then lead metrics are the input. And so an example would be finishing the album. That's a lagging metric because it's probably, it's going to lag in time. It's going to take, you know, months to get that completed. And you don't really get to check that box off or see how the results of that project are until it's actually completed. A lead metric is how many hours you're putting in every week to work on that album, or maybe it's how many songs you've written, like rough drafts, you know, those kind of things. It's very much input and smaller scale things that you're doing week by week, day by day. The core idea there is, 
pretty obvious, but it's just focusing on the lead metrics is a more powerful way to motivate yourself because you're kind of getting this small trickle of like, okay, I knocked this out. I did this. I worked on that. And I can see over time, I've put in 10 hours a week on the album. I've done this, this, and that. I'm leading towards that lag metric. They both matter, but it's going to be more motivating to focus on the lead. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I think it's really been helpful for me because it does offer kind of two ways to gauge growth. It's like there's growth in what you're accomplishing during your, let's say, typical work day, right? Your lead metrics. But there's also, well, let me stay with that for a minute. Like, what is my routine like? Am I doing better at sticking to deep work times than I did last year? Am I doing better this week and hitting my word quota than I did the week before, right? So we can kind of understand growth with what we're doing in the typical day, but then we can also understand growth in, you know, did I, did I hit the amount of essays on Substack that I wanted to do? Or did I do as many projects? Did I have as many poems published uh, as last year, right? Not to necessarily say, you know, getting things done, you need to do more and more each year. Like there's going to be a cap on that. Like you shouldn't see, <laughs> you shouldn't see like infinite growth in the project you're doing every year. But, but what, I, what I mean with that is like, we can sort of say, oh, I'm looking at lag metric growth and I'm looking at lead metric growth and kind of put those in two different buckets. I think the buckets are always helpful. <laughs> I love that you've introduced that metaphor. And so that way we're not, I don't know, it's just, it brings more clarity. What kind of growth are we talking about? Because that seems to be part of the question, right? Is it growth in like my methodology, how I go about doing things, my practices, my kind of discipline-oriented growths, or is it a growth in quality, right? Those are those are interconnected, but they're different, right? So it's like the quality of the work, that growth is involved with the growth of my habits and procedures, but they're they're kind of different. So I think lead and lag metrics often can help us just understand what we're looking at and what kind of growth, because first we've got to see it clearly before we can kind of evaluate how it's moving. So I, th- I thought that was really helpful. So I'm glad I'm glad you put that one up on the podcast notes. That's interesting because I could actually, so I want to talk for a minute about this quality and quantity idea. So you could look at your year maybe and say, I made this many projects, whether that's like photos taken, essays written, newsletters sent. You look at the quantity and you can also look at the quality do maybe an A-B comparison of like something a year ago to now. So I kind of, I think I would lump those in the same category of like, they're both results focused. One's just quantity, one's quality. And then the other side of it is, you know, was I just working for one month on this or was there like a consistency? How are those habits and inputs basically? What do you think about that? Yeah. So you're saying that both quantity and quality are lag metrics? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. I mean, the lead metrics, I think, are like, what are my habits? And I think when we're looking at growth, I think we should also look at our habits. So I think it's maybe tempting to always say, is this article that I wrote, or is this album better than the last album? Or is this song, you know, it's like, it's it's easy to compare lag metrics, I think, sometimes. And I'm saying easy, right? Relatively. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's probably not the easy first thing that comes to mind, though. But it's that's what I mean. That's much better said. So the first thing that comes to mind is comparing a, B. But we also need to be mindful that a big part of growth is setting up those lead metrics and setting and seeing, you know, what are the habits like? And in some ways, checking to whether or not I did my procedure, my protocol for the day, right? Did I hit my word count? Like that's actually refreshingly an easy thing to measure because the lead metrics are, you know, a little bit more quantifiable than 
the lag metrics, I think. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. So it actually comes back to that idea that we talked about in a few, maybe the episode about your dissertation, I want to say, from that Stephen Pressfield book, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, you just have to sit down and you have to do the work. And you have to keep doing it, not just for a day, but for an extended period of time over an extended set of years. Like you can take breaks, you're going to have ups and downs. There's different seasons to things, but it's about this long term. You you want to be a dancer, you're in the studio. You want to be a musician, you're making songs. Like the practice, basically, as Seth Godin calls it. So like I think the idea of lead metrics is very aligned with that. That is important, not because you can look at a Wednesday where you did an hour and a half and say like, that was so special and like something magical happened. It's just literally looking at the chain of things. Yeah, that's good. I think this is an idea that we've talked about a fair amount, but I'm more and more convinced of it that the sitting down, it's like you can, you can gauge, did I sit down this week, right? That's a pretty clear metric for creative growth. It's like, am I sitting down? Am I sitting down more than I used to sit down? Okay. Right. We can compare that. And so I think that's a really, really powerful way to say, you know, what are my disciplines that I need to be doing? And I think almost you can trust these. Like you can trust that if you're really improving your consistency in your lead metrics, that lag metric improvement is probably going to follow. I think I think there is a, yeah. a trust there of if I'm if I'm always sharpening the knife, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be easier to cut or or something like that. Like it's gonna get I can trust if I'm sitting down with the, with the whetstone and I'm working, then it's going to get sharper. It's like the one decision that you have to make that makes a hundred other decisions for you, you know? Like once you have a habit, that's really what that is. And you stop spending your time showing up to this work that's so emotionally fragile, I would say, creative sure. work. You remove the equation, ah, do I feel like it today? Am I in the mood? What should I work on? How long do I want to work on it? Like you have these sort of upper limits to your work and these different protocols. That's the decision that you make once that then builds, you build a string of those and you don't have to get into your head as much or you can push back on yourself whenever you're feeling all those different emotions and be like, I'm just, I literally just have to sit here today. Like that's my minimum goal is I sit here for an hour and a half or I do this many pages like you do with your dissertation. So I just wanted to say that because I feel like it's a big unlock to, to really, these metrics, I think the connection that's so powerful for me has been just being able to zoom out and be like, hey, I did some input <laughs> and that feels good enough. Like focusing on the input, let the outputs happen because what what happens with this creative work is we talk a lot about the dip and stuff. It's, it's like a constant mountain valley, mountain valley, up and down. And you, but you just keep, you keep putting in, you know, checking off days on the calendar like Seinfeld does and you, you're both, you have to be there for the valleys to get to the mountains, I guess is what I'm trying to say, you know? So I think that just these, this framework really helps you like show up and, and ride out those emotions up and down. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think- Not it, sure if it's, that added anything valuable, but I just like, I'm very bullish about this. Yeah. <laughs> nice. He's book, Colby's buying the process. <laughs> uh, Dude, one of the other things I was thinking about, and if we can shift gears, and I think this is something that, and I'm just an amen to all that we just said. I think that's something that we're both kind of implementing, I think, in our processes more. You, you've been you've been on this for a while. I think I've been trying to get a little more systematic in the lead metrics. So double thumbs up on that. Thinking about lag metrics for a minute here, what do you think the best way to you know, 
how do we sh- how should we deal with lag metrics? So we said there's some some concrete stuff for lead metrics, but maybe we can talk a, a minute about how do we evaluate growth when we're thinking about lag metrics? And I think this will probably be discipline specific, but anything coming to mind off the bat? So I did a little research before this episode. Just I was very curious, like what happens whenever you search for how to track creative growth? And it's actually kind of interesting. I feel like the things that came up were kind of like, if you're like a teaching an art class or something like that, like some of them were like, you know, working with kids, some schools, probably same for university in some cases, but really practical example that I pulled from that that was interesting was pretty much this idea of doing a pre-assessment, taking your course, typically getting the kind of like developing your skill with an instructor and then doing a post-assessment or an exam. So the idea is like, you maybe you're drawing a self-portrait, you take, I think that was the example. So you, your pre-assessment is basically, here's a piece of paper, draw yourself self-portrait. Okay, here's kind of where you're at today. We're going to work for four months, go through the I'm, class. I'm thinking about how bad a self-portrait of, I would draw like a circle. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. A self-portrait right now would be so bad. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 100%, same. And then, so self-portrait, teacher takes the assessment, you do your course, you kind of learn these different skills and practice. You probably make many different versions over the course and then a post-assessment. And then you take the, the pre and the post-assessment kind of like remove the stuff in the middle and you just put the pre and post assessment side by side and you get to see, okay, here's where we were six months ago. Here's where we are today. So that kind of got me thinking that you could really easily copy that same idea across probably a lot of disciplines. Maybe it's harder for something like an essay or something where it's like less visual. Do you know what I mean? Like, or I could see just thrown out, maybe you should riff a little bit. Like, how would you see that applying to different disciplines? Well, here's a little wrinkle. I'll throw this out. I, I think that's, you know, that's an intuitive way of comparison, but let's, let's, let's alter our hypothetical a little bit. Let's say you've been drawing portraits for 10 years and then you yeah, want to gauge right. your progress from year 10 to year 12. Right. Or year 10 to year 11. Like what about the person that is, you know, Let's say the let's take the photographer because we're we're in the visual realm here. Let's say the photographer that's been working for five years, really honing the craft, doing the lead metrics. Now they take a photograph, right? That pre-evaluative photo, that first photograph of last year, and compare it to the work that they were doing this year. You know, in year six, it gets a little trickier to me. I think I don't totally. know. Yeah. No. I mean, so. That's, I agree. I'm glad you're taking it this direction because I didn't spend a ton of time doing this research, but it didn't feel like, I mean, those being the top results, I was kind of like, man, like it's pretty simple. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's like, okay, here's the picture before, here's the picture after, before, you know, and it's very easy in that it was all examples of like painting or drawing. And so, you know, this again, is the I model took in, a few in minutes, the classroom but... too. I'll throw out like that's great. Like I think this would be super helpful for like my students to do. Like here's an, here's something that you worked on at the beginning of the year. Look look how far we've come. I think it's great for, model for the classroom in a lot of different ways because it's just you're, a little too sterile. Yeah, I think it just needs to get more refined, right? Because the basic idea of comparison, I think, has got to be there. Like you're you're going to have to compare old work to newer work. And so that has to happen. I just think the ability to recognize what better is gets really complicated. 
And then here's another wrinkle. I'm just going to, I just keep, keep throwing them on here. There's this phenomenon for so many artists that like they create something that's a masterpiece and then they feel like they can't ever do it again. I mean, it's something Steinbeck felt of like, I did, you know, I wrote The Grapes of Wrath and I don't know how to wrestle with that's probably the best thing that I'm ever going to (laughs) do. It's like, I don't know, there's this sense of, you know, and then now you're like, oh man, it's like, it seems like growth has somehow, you know, been off the table. And this is a bit, I mean, a lot of it I think is a personal struggle because eventually he talks about East of Eden, which was after The Grapes of Wrath, as like the culmination of all his skill. So like he he obviously got over this sense of that's the best I'm going to do. Like growth snuck back in on him. Like, oh, I can, I can actually do something better. Whether or not, you know, The Grapes of Wrath is better than East of Eden is a different question. But I just think it's it's really interesting. And I think it's a struggle that a lot of artists have, of especially when they do something they think is good, and maybe this this is the rare case that you do something that you wonder if that's the best you can do. But that's another wrinkle in here. Mm. Yeah, that that's a really interesting wrinkle. So go and start with the first one. Just what if you have you're already in your craft, you're not trying to do something for the very first time, then you have like a body of work already, or you have previous experience. How do you then compare? Like the thing that first hit me was like, how do you do this without basically just making the same thing twice? essentially because like obviously it's easy to be like okay here's a picture of a sunflower here's a picture of a sunflower six months later and i had to make it twice and it was like basically practice i mean you could do that you could go back and remix a song that you made a year before that'd be but to me i'm just like it's not gonna happen like i just it's just boring and not super realistic probably i'd rather work on something new so I think, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I just want to riff on that for a second. Like there's got to be a really, a good, a better way to compare something that's maybe similar to a previous work or another question is just like, maybe how much of this is self-reflective versus like feedback from others. Maybe you take your two songs, send them both to this producer who's a few years ahead Mm -hmm. or photographer that you really respect and just say, Hey, like, would you be willing to share just some quick feedback? Like, please rip this up. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Give them the right context to really take the gloves off. Maybe that's a better approach here where we can get that outside perspective. I definitely think feedback from others is going to be a big part of this. The thing that came to my mind in regards to this this difficulty of comparison, I think it's going to have to do with taste again. And particularly, I think you've got to start employing the deep knowledge, hopefully the growing knowledge of your craft. So it's it, it's the things that, you know, the simple metric of does this sunflower look more like a sunflower than my first one? It's like, okay, that's an easy metric. Yeah, this one looks more like a sunflower. But then maybe as that drawing continues, it's like, does this drawing have more depth to it? Does this drawing have more, you know, I'm not an, a visual artist so it's like I'm, I'm, I don't have these but in the writing world it's like okay are, do these sentences how's the, the tone is the tone more refined is the word choice better right is the action more taut is the the pace more appropriate to the genre you know how are my verbs you know are my verbs really doing what they need to do right so it's like I, I no longer engaging is this you know just loosely a better story but now I'm engaging you know how am I doing all these little minutiae better? And so there's almost like a development that's required. Like you got to learn the language 
because if you don't have that language, I think it's going to be really difficult to understand whether or not the quality is improving. Like you've got to know what you're looking for. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of maybe analogies with mixing. It's like if you don't know what the if you don't know what you're looking for, then it's going to be really hard to know if those comparisons like it's going to be hard to make those comparisons. You won't even have the language for it. I don't know. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So what it comes to mind for me is it's like you go from having a black and white vision of your craft as an early artist where it's like, oh yeah, we just need to like write sentences and paragraphs and like chapters and sections and talk about the right topic and have a good title and blah, blah, blah. Like you got the basics, the core things are there. And then the deeper you go in your craft, the more you go from black and white to this gradient perspective of like, okay, there's, yeah, there's sentences, there's sentence structure. And then there's these, all these different examples I have in my mind and these different little nuances that make sentence structure such an integral thing. And it also connects over here to this other aspect that before was just one of 10 categories, but it's like now there's this, there's just extra layers and depth to each. So all that to say in like the sunflower example, it's like, yeah, they're high level. You go from looking at, yes, this looks more like a sunflower to being just pickier, like not in a critical way, but somewhat over time, you're going to become more critical just because you have more depth and language around the specific areas of your craft. And that's where you can then pinpoint, okay, this is, you know, I'm obviously, I need to get better at this through the feedback from others. You can start to find those weak spots and that can be something you keep investing more in. Yeah. I think that's, that that's definitely a good summation of it because we do have to have the critical apparatus has to get sharper. So, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if another metaphor might help. It's like if at the beginning, you're just trying to get, you know, if let's say you're trying to weigh something and you start out with saying, okay, well, we just need to get around 20 pounds, right? Get the basics in place. And you kind of, you've got a, 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 I don't know, a old beat up, scale that you got at Goodwill or something, and it can kind of get you around 20 pounds, but you don't need the precision. But then you go on to do, you know, uh, other projects, let's say baking other things that you need to measure out right down to the grams. It's like, well, you need a better measuring tool. Like you're going to need a scale that's got a more precise, fine, you know, it needs to go to a couple more decimal points, right? Or in scientific work, right? You can't just have a scale that's going to do pounds. You need ounces or maybe you need, you know, tiny down to milligrams. And so it's like the, the weight has got to get more precise. And I think that's the critical apparatus. That's the taste. That's you learning and mastering the language, the concepts, the ideas of your craft. Because until yeah, that's that... That's great. That's great. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good metaphor. I mean, it's just, you go from the, the simple to the complex. And so it's definitely, all of this is so iterative. I, I actually have one more thought, if that's cool. Send it. Because I've been, this is something that came up for me recently and I've been wanting to ask you about it. Over time, I see this pattern that artists get more and more confident. And so the decisions they make get bolder and bolder. The lines become crisper. The focus is clearer. There's less complexity, more focus. And I've been trying to like figure out like what's going on with that. I mean, I think it's basically just like a confidence thing and a finding your voice kind of thing. But it's a sim- it's similar metaphor of like you go from this 
it's actually the inverse of what I just described in terms of like going from black and white to gradient. It's more like you go from like, oh yeah, this one song was kind of kind of intense, kind of interesting. It was a certain style to like 10x everything, make it louder, make it bigger, make the words bolder, make them say some things that are a little bit going to make some people upset. Like everything just gets turned up in the confidence. It's almost like you go from that gradient to more solid lines and more clarity around this is the style and pushing the edges of things to really make make a statement Ooh. almost. And I feel like there's definitely not everyone. This is like I could probably pull up some examples in my head, like with musicians at least, maybe some like visual artists where you see like an experiment and you see like, oh, that's an interesting, like you can sort of see that style pop up in this first work three years earlier, but then you listen three years later or watch or see three years later and it's like everything is in clarity. Like that yeah. earlier thing was it's all blurry so compared to this. Does Am I making any sense? And maybe it's not that deep, but it's been this pattern that I've been seeing and I'm like, I want to do something with this idea. Oh, goodness. This is so good. It's almost as if they slowly become who they are in a, in a way of like, oh, like I saw this was coming and now it's here. Like it was almost right, hinting right. at something that wasn't there yet, which is fascinating. The The other thing that came to my mind is this idea of risk. It's like it, it also involves like turning that aspect of the work, the intensity, let's say intensity of it, turning that up. It's like sometimes like that throws everything out of balance. And I think there's a creative risk that comes with this higher level of confidence that you're willing to take more risks and that you're willing to say, okay, maybe this turning this knob, this certain aspect of my work up, maybe it comes to us like, oh, that's what you've been trying to get at all along and you've done it. Like that thing that was whispered, you've now, right, spoken clearly. But at the same time, you know, it's like great creative writers, great creatives in general, I think they have stuff that flops. I mean, some stuff just isn't as good as other stuff. And I think it's like, that's almost better because you took the risk than doing the same thing over and over and over again. Like there's something that we admire. Right. but... Oh, sorry. Keep going. Keep no, going. go ahead. I'm just saying there's something we admire about like the artist that does that's taking risks. So here's what's interesting. I'm trying to square this idea of like built confidence, refining your sort of style. And I think this is a very aesthetic idea. Most heavily, the ideas that come to mind are things like Wes Anderson going further and further and further into his style and keeping it the same. I mean, the topic example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's this pressing of you know we should maybe break that down a little further and then in music you see someone going from like a certain style or way they rap or sing or talk to like just it's so clearly defined five ten years later yes and but so i'm trying to square this idea with the reinvention yeah the reinvention yeah like how do you chain like because you might you're going to keep changing and growing and you're building confidence and maybe your topics are getting edgier and you have more clarity on where you stand or these different things happen but that's one side of it but i think it's more of an aesthetic conversation and so can you do this or maybe the changing aesthetics is you becoming more confident so maybe it's not that different anyways i don't know dude that's a good one i don't have a clear-cut answer at all well what do you think about the west west anderson though because I feel like that isn't an interesting example, but maybe he was, I don't know his disc, his like body of work as well as you do. I don't know where to put the beginning of this, but things after the Grand Budapest Hotel, where you've got like a literal palette 
everything in the movie is basically sharing a palette. You've got all the square, squared off, centered shots, the long tracking shots. Right. You can if you can watch Bottle Rocket, his first film, and see where he's going, and it's like you recognize that Andersonness there. Like I, it, I totally follow you with that. But at the same time. Like he's certainly innovating and he's certainly changing and he's doing different things with plot and you know the French Dispatch is a great example. It's got three stories kind of tied loosely together within one movie, so he is changing. But there is that element of continuity, and it gets sharper, right? Like, or does it? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that's I just. I think my, it does. They said Asteroid City was like the most <laughs> Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I had a conversation with a friend who's like, yeah, like there's too much. Like he was like, yeah, this is not as good as like when Owen Wilson was like help, you know, played a bigger role in, in, in things. So it was funny. It was like, okay, maybe this is, it was the most. And someone said, okay, that actually hurt the aesthetic. So that kind of goes with like the knob might've gone too high there. But I do think it's an interesting contrast between someone who falls into place and they, it's not that they never change. They certainly change. No. Okay. I just gave Anderson, we're saying, is kind of keeping his thing. And it's just the same way that Robert Frost, he doesn't go and write free verse. Like he writes his measured, rhythmic, rhyming poetry, right? He writes in meter and rhyme. Like he doesn't change that. He changes, his poetry changes, but he doesn't like just abandon that and start writing free verse like Eliot or or William Carlos Williams or another kind of modernist poet. So we've got that, but then we've got the reinvention. Like what do we do with the reinvention? The Bob Dylan that wants to go electric, that turns things on his head. Like, is he actually turning things on his head? Like, what do we do with the the reinvention? I don't know. Because it definitely seems like that's like the right thing to do. Like to pursue, to not get stuck, to to be free to change and grow. I mean, that's like why you love art in the first place most of the time is you're exploring and learning and creating. It- like creating is actually like the act of making something new in some way. So... This may be a false I dichotomy. I think we may be Maybe working ourselves is, yeah. into one. Because but, it would be wrong to say Anderson or Frost aren't changing and reinventing. But at the same time, it's like they didn't do the hardcore turn. But sometimes a hardcore turn is bad. I mean, the craft lasagna is a bad idea. <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, maybe maybe it's not. Yeah. It's it's honestly, I think the big idea though is just people seeing that transformation of the confidence over time yields a more and more sort of pronounced and clear product. I mean, you can kind of see it even with like products over time, like Apple building the iPhone, and then you kind of keep pushing things further and further and further. The The changes get maybe subtler and subtler in some cases as products evolve, but you also start to see, oh, this is where it was kind of moving from the beginning. It just took you, like for example... 10 iPods to get to this really thin version or something sure. like that, you know? I don't know. So how do we relate this to creative growth, do you think? Tracking growth. So, yeah, so thank you for reeling me back in. Uh, <laughs> maybe good. we cut that section down, but... No, I, yeah, think it's, I, mean, I think it's pertinent. Well, I think it came up just because we were talking about comparison, comparing your work, and, and over time, it's sort of that pattern that I've seen. And so I wonder, how do you Made look up, ahead yeah. to... Or look back to your work and say, ooh, I'm going to pull these three things and I'm going to just turn them up because that's yeah. the thing that I really want to build in my voice. Maybe it's a little bit less conscious than I'm thinking, though. I'm not sure. 
Yeah. Although I th- it, I don't know. I mean, be. Wes Anderson's probably very conscious, like the certain elements early on that he latched onto stylistically with a color palette, with the framing. Like mm-hmm. those are very intentional mm-hmm. decisions. Yeah, totally. I think it's got to be conscious, but I think there's also a big unconscious element. I think someone like McCarthy would talk about the unconscious element a lot. I think some of it is you can't compare apples to oranges in that like one project. Let's say you try something else, you know, you can't just go A to A. Now that I mentioned McCarthy, it's like you're not going to compare. I mean, you can't just compare the road to, you know, Blood Meridian because they're they're different novels. They're doing different things. They're in different styles. So it's like you can talk about individual elements that compose them and how, you know, aesthetically successful they were. But to some degree, it's like we are limited in comparison, right? It's we can't ever just do one sunflower drawing and another sunflower drawing. Like that's not like it's just not possible. So I think that just has to be a complicating factor that we remember. Yeah. I don't know if we ever got back to your second complicating factor. Did we cover that? The, uh, the first one was just how do you do it? If how do you compare work whenever you already have work and you're not just starting something new? But what was the other one? It was about the other one was about like to... we can just let's elide the other one, let it stand there. We'll pick it up some other time. Well, I think that one interesting place to take this maybe would be maybe we circle back to the how you compare again. And one question is like we've talked about comparing to yourself, and there's probably more creative ways to do that than we've described as well, but how do you compare to others, and should you? Ho, ho, ho. I think you've got to, right? I mean, to some extent, it's a trap, right? It's a, I mean, to some extent, it's a trap, and there's all sorts of dangers. There's pitfalls of discouragement. There's pitfalls of just trying to imitate others. There's pitfalls of losing your voice. There's, I mean, there's, there's, there's dangers lurking about for this in so many different ways, but... But I'm on a McCarthy kick now that he came to mind. Books are made out of other books. Songs are made out of other songs. It's like none of this exists in a vacuum. You got to have influences and you got to know your influences really well. Right. And you got to wrestle with them and you've got to constantly, I think, and write in writing. I wonder if you think of this in music. You have to go and listen to the quote unquote masters. Like you, you have to hold them up as the standard to strive towards. So I think there has to be a deep sense of, you know, maybe it's not you comparing your work. Maybe it's not me comparing my work to another substacker, but maybe it's me comparing my work to, you know, a dead writer. And that's and that's maybe a more productive comparison. But I think comparison's gotta be it's gotta play an integral part. What what are some of the ways that you do that? Like do you think it's just we obviously talk about developing your taste, which is just sitting with great art basically reading it, watching it, listening to it. But how do you compare practically, you think? Like, I mean, I know one, like in music, you can literally take take the reference mixes we talked about in another episode, like literally pull the example songs that you want to sound like or similar in your genre, pull them into your session and actually literally do like comparisons of how does this song feel? Now let's play the the mastered song from a professional. Oh man, there's, what's this gap? And kind of like over time, closing that gap or putting your songs you've made in the past into a playlist and then mixing in some other songs that you like that are made from professionals and then doing that kind of like how does it feel when it switches from my song to to that pro song like that's definitely a practical thing on the music side but what about you i feel like it's you just gotta you gotta start paying attention to how 
things are accomplished, I think, in some ways. I mean, some of it's ineffable, of course, like your taste develops unconsciously. and But some of it's very conscious. It's like, you know, learning how a sentence accomplishes its effect. So, you know, paying attention to something like, you know, those rhetorical forms that I was talking about a couple episodes ago, like something like anacoluthan, which is like the, the the interjection of an idea in mid-sentence and saying, ooh, there's a writer doing that. Or synesthesia, which like the sun is silent, mixing like sight and sound and using them invertly like that, the smell of darkness, like something like that. You know, I was reading Camus in class and he says something like that. And well, instead of just reading that and being like, that's a good sentence, you say, oh no, he's using synesthesia. It's like, this is a rhetorical form. And so recognizing that, you can then put that in your tool belt, right? That's another, it's a tool you can use. And so I think it's, you know, you got to know the mechanics almost. Dude, it's like the, we've talked about creative first principles, which are like the the tree or like the le- the tree or the branches, right? And it's like, you got like three or four big things, but then it's really like all of the details like that really matter that people pick up on are like the leaves, you know, because they cover the whole tree and there's a lot more of them than those big branches. And so it's like synesthesia, anacolisi wasiwa, whatever yeah, that yeah, word yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what it was. Like these things or like super reverse reverb, super specific transition effects in video style. Verse, like, reverb. Yeah, like you know, it's, that, you know, it's like you'll hear it everywhere now, but it's essentially like this sound. Uh, maybe I'll just actually put an example into the podcast. Here. Yes, do it. But it's basically yeah. like you take the voice, you flip it around, and then whenever the then you put reverb on it, then you reverse that again, and it creates this feeling where it's like right before the sound, like oh, before. That's cool. So it's like you're hearing whatever's about to be sung like a second before it's sung, and you'll hear this same technique in like every single pop song all the time in the past ten years these like little techniques that are like not super hard, but you got to spend a little bit of time to dig up. Like, how do they do it? feels like there's, those are another example of the gradient where you really get into these tiny little details and learning like, Oh, that's what made this scene so interesting. It's like a lighting trick or yes. whatever else it is. Yes, of course you exactly. can't divorce it from the bigger categories, but it's, it's or very... else you just get a pile of leaves. I mean, I think that's such a good metaphor. True, true. It's like, yeah, you, you got to have the big structural stuff. But at the same time, it's like you got to have the attention at the leaves. Oh, this is so, I love that, man. That's such a good mm. It puts me in the fall vibe. <laughs> well, dude, this is a great conversation. Anything else you want to to cover really quickly? I think, I think we're ready to wrap, man. This was, I think, a really productive conversation. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to paying a little more attention this, uh, this year. What do you think that, like, takeaway for you, like, if you're journaling, do you think it's like, you're going to look at, here's my lead metrics for the week, and then you can sort of zoom out on the end of the year. I think I'm going to try to, you know, be keep a little closer eye on my lead metrics. So maybe how many days I did what I needed to do with the dissertation, I think it's a really simple one. So did I hit my word count? How many days out of the days that I wanted to do it? And just try to keep keep some accountability on that, I think is going to be one for me. And I think some of it's going to be personal. Like for me, it's like, it's the lead metrics that need my attention. You know what the (sighs) irony is? For me, it's the opposite. I mean, it's kind of classic, but it's like, for me, it's like, ah, I missed Wednesday. I'm so mad. I didn't get to do this project. And then it's like, dude, zoom out. Like you had four big things this year. 
it's like, oh yeah, that feels good. Like, so I literally need to focus on the lag maybe a little bit more and just like, let's look at the three big things I did the last six months, you know? Yeah. It's going to be non-identical. So you craft listeners. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, Love it. Cool. Well, that's the craft. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, please follow the show so that you get notified about the new ones that come out. We drop a new episode every two weeks on Wednesday mornings. And also just please send the link to one friend that you think would enjoy this interview. That helps us so much. If you have any ideas for other people we should have on the show, topics we should talk about, or even just feedback on how we can improve, you can send us an email at heycraftpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewell.org or on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.